it's wonderful to be back with you guys. And my wife just had um, uh, a couple of weeks of, uh, of annual leave, which was uh, wonderful to be able to take. Who included the set of surveys in shorts? Oh, okay, there we go. Sorry, sorry, Johnny. Um, it was wonderful. We got to travel around. We got to uh, see some friends of mine. And I think one of my favorite things about being on um, annual leave, particularly over the summer, is it means that I pretty much get to eat the food that I'm not allowed to eat the rest of the year. And so we were in uh, one place we were staying, and we were there for seven days, and every single day for breakfast, I had eggs benedict. And, and this is not what I'm preaching on, but eggs benedict is amazing. I mean, first off, you have an amazing poached egg. Then you put ham underneath that, anything that adds ham, you're going to be onto a winner. Then you drizzle it, cover it, splurge it with holiday sauce, and then you put on top of it, um, underneath at the very bottom, the greatest of all the muffins, the English muffin. That is not even up for debate. I mean, we talk about dogma, doctrine, and disputable issues. That is dogma, well applied. English muffins, the greatest of all muffins. But surprisingly, that's not what I'm going to talk to you about today. I'm going to talk about something much more exciting than English muffin, even more exciting than Egg Benedict. I'm going to be talking about the book of Leviticus. Now, I know what has happened. As soon as I said that, something has just died in your heart. You have just gone, oh no, I've got 50 minutes of this. Well, good news, I'm not allowed to preach for 50 minutes. You've only got 30 minutes of this, so that's good news number one. But the second thing, and I think the more important thing, is we have to remember this is the Word of God. This is in the Bible. Every single book has been chosen by God because it reveals something about His character, and it has life to speak to us today. And I think the problem is, we so often kind of that's the right word. We kind of go for the more attractive bits of the Bible. We go for the bits that are more say We can all get on board with the Gospels because we see Jesus, he's walking around, he's doing miracles, he's giving parables, he's doing teaching, great things that happen. We can go, yeah, I want to get on board with that. Or we kind of read some of the prophets. We kind of, you know, kind of hear about what God is going to do in the future and how he's orchestrating history and events to kind of have his plan. We get to the letters of Paul and we go, oh, there's practical teaching, there's things that I can apply into my life today. And then we think about things like Leviticus and Numbers and we go, but there's life in here. And so if there is nothing else that takes place this morning, I hope that you discover almost a fresh passion for some of the forgotten bits of the Bible. I hope that you go home and you start flicking through it and you start going, you know what, I'm going to put in the effort, I'm going to put in the hard work, and I'm going to see what God has to say to me in these books, because there is life in these books, and there is words that God wants to speak into your life. There are things that He wants to do, there are changes that He wants to make for you reading, for you meditating, for you dwelling on the whole of Scripture. So that's my plug for the book of Leviticus. Hopefully, at the end of it, you'll be as passionate as I am. But Leviticus is a, a part of um, the first five books of the Bible that's generally known as the Torah, or the Torah of Moses. 
And for Jews, these are the kind of the foundational kind of parts of their faith. And then, obviously, the prophets and the wisdom literature and everything else is, is important, but they keep coming back to the Torah. And the reason why the Torah is so important is it starts sort of laying out what God is wanting to do. We read in Genesis that humanity is created, that it's created in the presence of God, but then due to rebellion, it's banished. And then suddenly, we start to see God is formulating this plan. That God is wanting to restore the world back to Him. The Bible starts with people being in God's presence. And the Bible ends at the very end of Revelation of people being in God's presence. And so the arc of Scripture, the narrative, the story that connects every single book together is about this journey back into God's presence. And so Genesis tells us the story of how God chooses to do it. He decides that he's going to do it through one family. That he's going to have this special family, this special relationship that he's going to make this promise. And as his family grows and develops, that that family will then be a blessing to the rest of the world. And so Genesis ends with God's chosen family now in Egypt. And we pick up Exodus 400 years later. And this family has grown. It's multiplied. It's become a small nation. But it's become a nation that's enslaved. It's become a nation that is coming to worship and serve a foreign king. That is being forced under foreign gods. And suddenly there's promises. You know, God saying, I'm going to work through you. You are going to be the light. You are going to be the beacon on the hill. You're going to be the source that I bring people back into my presence. In like distant promises. But God has not given up. And as we know, we know the story of God speaking to Moses and Moses challenging Pharaoh and the Egyptians kind of fleeing from Egypt. And then they find themselves wandering around the desert. They find themselves kind of wrestling through, well, what does this mean if we're going to be a nation of God? God has this amazing promise throughout the book of Exodus. When he says to them that this nation that I'm wanting to build, this land that I'm wanting to take you to, I want to dwell in your midst again. And I think what's really interesting is when we look at the human state, when we look at humanity, we have to bear in mind that we were made to be in God's presence. That is what is in, that is what is in our DNA. And so any time that we are out of God's presence, any time that we are sort of away from God's plan and God's will, we are sort of out of how we were created to be. And so there's always going to be a friction, there's always going to be a challenge, there's always going to be kind of struggles, because that's not what was created. That was not what was meant to be. And so again, we see this theme of God promising, I'm going to be in the midst. And the key moment of this is found in Exodus 19, where God decides to make covenants with his people. Up until this point, basically the relationship has been, God said, I'm going to tell you to do something, and you need to do it, but that's about it. What's amazing is the Israelites even managed to mess that up. I mean, it's kind of like me driving with the sat-nav. The sat-nav tells me to go left, and I think I know better, and I go right, 
but 20 minutes later I correct myself and go back on the path that was originally planned. There's something in that human nature, that fallen state, that says, ah, I don't need to obey you. I'll do whatever I like. But in Exodus 19, God says, no, I'm going to make covenant with you. I'm going to bind myself to you. I'm going to make a set of promises to you, but in return, what I ask is faithful. What I ask is exclusivity. What I ask is that you make me your only God, that you forsake all others. And that's why in the marriage ceremony we call it a marriage covenant, because it's the same picture. When I chose to get married to Hannah, what I was basically saying was, I choose you, and I reject all other 3.5 billion women. Now, granted, not all 3.5 billion women wanted to marry me, but there was at least one, one and a half billion, I think I can confidently say. And so, I am choosing to reject the others for the one. And that is what takes place in that covenant of covenant. And God said, it's not just enough for you to forsake others, but there's a certain way, there's certain codes, there's certain uh, morals that I want you to live by. And so it's in that that we get the given, uh, so we get the giving of the Ten Commandments. It is this key moment. God is binding himself to his nation. And so the final 20 chapters of Exodus are kind of laying out what this is going to look like. And the final seven, you get this description of the tabernacle. Well, I've talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at the Resident Alien series. And the tabernacle, if you remember, was how God was going to fulfill the promise that I will dwell in your midst. This would be the tent of meeting. This would be the place where God's glory, His Shekinah glory, His actual tangible presence would dwell. So we pick up our text in the final chapter, Exodus chapter 14. But the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The word glory there is this amazing word in Hebrew. It's the word kavod. Kavod. It's got a deep sounding resonance to it. And the word kavod obviously it gets translated as glory. But it also can be translated as sort of weightedness, heaviness, substance. There's something about the glory of God that has weight to it. There's something about the glory of God that is tangible. As I stood at the front of that church and Hannah joined me when I got married, there was a weightiness to that moment. There was a substance in that moment. There was a heaviness to that moment. There was a realization that what is taking place here is significant. It cannot just be ignored. It cannot be rushed or hurried. This is a moment. I see the glory of God the weightedness of God, the heaviness of God. It's the tangible presence of God. There's something significant in that moment. There's something significant that has taken place. And so the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So we, we, we kind of get this problem. God is saying, that I want you to build uh, this tabernacle that's going to be in the center of the path. This is where you're going to interact with me. This is going to be the tent of meeting. But then when the glory of God, when the, when the kavod of God rests in that place, Moses 
is not able to act. There's something that is stopping him. And the problem is that right in that moment of Exodus 19, when God gives that covenant and God says, I agree, and Moses says, I agree, and that exact moment, down at the foot of the mountain, the Israelites, and I love it how Aaron described it later, he said, he talks about that we threw our gold into the fire and by accident, a golden calf came out. I mean, that is one amazing fire, that's how it happens. I wish that I could do that with my bacon. Just kind of throw everything into the oven and just hope for the best when it comes out. And so in that moment, they broke the covenant, the very moment that Moses on behalf of the Israelites were saying, we will forsake all others. They were running off with the gods of their heart. And so Moses was unable to kind of enter into this meeting, uh, this tent of meeting, the presence of God, because he was polluted. He was contaminated. The brokenness of the covenant reeked over him. There was a stench, there was a smell of sin, and it could not be permitted to be present where God was present. And so that's how Exodus ends with this problem. God was in the tabernacle. Moses is at the foot. Um, Moses is at the, the doorstep, unable to enter because of sin. The spiritual pollution, the corruption, not just his own, but of the whole of the Israelites, meant that he could not be where God was. So that then Leviticus picks up. And so Leviticus, in the whole book, that is focused on trying to look at how God's chosen people, even though they were corrupted, even though they were covered in sin, even though they were spiritually unclean, could dwell near the presence of God. And it presents basically three solutions. The second solution, and we'll come back to the first one, so the second solution is that there will be a priest. So there will be a selection of people who could go in on behalf of the people and make amends. The third solution was that there would be a set of purity, so a set of things and guidance on how you should live your life, both in terms of um, what you should do and what you should eat and what you should wear, but also kind of morally how you should live your life. And the idea was that these two things would help the nation of Israel be set apart and help them become holy and so they could be in God's presence. But then the first, this is what we're going to look at today, was this idea of ritual, this idea of sacrifice. This idea that there could be certain things that are done that would cover the gap, that would deal with the sin, that would kind of wash away the pollution, that would be the bridge of the gulf that separated humanity from God. And so, Leviticus chapter 1 starts with that. And we see five uh, sacrifices or five offerings that are presented. Two of them, the grain one and the fellowship one, it's just about saying thanks to God. It's about saying, God, I recognize what you've done. I recognize what you've given. I recognize who you are in my life. And my response is to give thanks. But then the final three are about dealing with that sin, about dealing with that separation. And so you have the sin offering, and so literally kind of dealing with the, with the item. 
had the guilt offering, which was about kind of restoring the relationship both with God but also with fellow man. And then you had the burnt the offering that was to be all consumed by God. And that's where we pick up our text today. If you've got your Bibles uh, in front of you, you can go to Leviticus chapter 6. And we'll get started at verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, Give Aaron and his sons this command. These are the regulations for the burnt offering. The burnt offering is to remain on the altar hearth throughout the month till morning, and the fire must be kept burning in the altar. The priest shall then put on his linen clothes with linen undergarment next to his body and shall remove the ashes of the burnt offering that the fire has consumed at the altar and place them beside the altar. Then he is to take off his clothes and put on other clothes and carry the ashes outside the camp to a place that is ceremonially clean. The fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. Every morning the priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offering on the fire burn the fat of the fellowship offering. The fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must not go out. Now, the other four offerings, part of what would take place is you would present the animal or grain or bread or wine, whatever it was, and a section of it would be burnt up that would go to God, a section of it would be consumed by the priest, and then a, a third and final section you would and it was sort of this idea of fellowship. It was this idea of sort of having a meal together, restoring the broken relationship. But in the burnt offering, as the name suggests, the whole thing was to be consumed by fire. The whole thing was to be offered up to God. And the word that we translate into burnt offering, it sort of literally in its, um, in kind of the original in Hebrew, what it means is to ascend. And it's this picture of the smoke ascending to God. And we read, in Leviticus chapter 1, that, that, that the prayer is that this may be a pleasing aroma to God. That this may be something that kind of buys divine favor. That it may be something that kind of God kind of accepts as they were to journey in the Holy of Holies. You see, remember the picture that Rob showed us of the tabernacle. You had the very central place in the middle where God dwelt, but then right at the entranceway was this altar was this place that if anyone wanted to come to God, they needed to give a burnt offering. They needed to bring something that basically got them in the door because their sin, that corruption, that pollution, the thing that had stopped Moses from entering, stopped anyone from coming into the presence of God. We read in some of the descriptions about what actually takes place in chapter 1. If the, offering is, sorry, if the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer male without defect. You are presented at the entrance of the tent of meetings or be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your heart to make it for you. And then it goes in and it gives loads of detail. And so the problem with the burnt offering was that it was costly. Imagine this, just think about this for a moment. Every time that you came to God, you had to give a piece of your prized livestock. You had to give something that for the rest of the year would have generated you income. It kind of would be like if every time you came to Well of Life, I stood at the door and made you write a 10,000 euro check. 
And that would be costly. You would really think about, oh, do I want to come? Can I come? Can I afford to come? And that was the thing with the plan offering, was that every time you wanted to enter into the presence of God, it cost you dearly. You couldn't just decide on a whim. Yeah, you go hang out with God. It's always worth it. You had to plan. You had to prepare. You had to go and prepare the offering that was going to be sacrificed. You had to kind of work out what I sacrificed. Yeah, this is my final cow. What am I going to do next? Do I have to wait? There was a cost to entering in to the presence of God. And so you see this instruction then the priests that they are to keep this altar constantly burning. They're, they're constantly to put fresh wood on it. And I think there are two main reasons for this. The first one is well, it was a sign of God's continued presence with the Israelites. The fire burning was a sense that God was with them, that God was kind of fulfilling his end of the bargain, his end of the covenant. But I think the other reason that God tells them that they need to constantly keep it burning was because there was a constant need for sacrifice. Every single time possible. Every single time you wanted to be in God's presence, you had to pay dearly. And the problem was, you could never truly deal with your corruption. You could never deal with it. You could never really deal with your pollution or the junk the stuff that separated you from God, because while you may have enough to sacrifice for that moment and that day, as soon as you step out of God's presence, you were back in the same situation. And if you wanted to re-enter, again, you would have to sacrifice. And so I think this fire that burned day and night was a continual reminder to the Israelites that they were separated from God, that yes, His presence was near, but they could not dwell in his midst. They could not be in the center of his tabernacle. They could not be under his kavod, under his glory, under his weightlessness, because their sin constantly separated them. Their pollution, their failures, their messing up constantly was a gap, was a barrier to experiencing God. So for me, Leviticus, yes, it's a book about explaining or kind of seeing how God's chosen nation was able to dwell near to God. But it also is a constant reminder that this system, that this setup, ultimately was futile. It could never fully achieve, it could never truly turn back the hand of time, that it was almost just a shadow of what the relationship was like in the Garden of Eden. And I think for us today, I think some of us are kind of caught in that system. You know, remember, these are God's chosen people, so there is a relationship with God here. And they are, they're doing the right things, they're bringing the sacrifice, and they're momentarily in God's presence. But the problem is they're caught on this sin loop. They're caught on this thing of having to constantly of themselves Give to try and restore that relationship back. I believe with every part of my heart that there are people here today who are constantly sacrificing on the altar of good works. 
of good intentions, of if I just do this and this, I will be accepted by God. If I just try really hard to not commit that sin, God is going to restore me. God is going to redeem me. I'm going to feel God's love again. And the problem is, we end up like those Israelites and Leviticus, and we end up because we can't tell it. We can maybe last a day, a week, a month, a year, whatever. But then we mess up. And we're back when we started. You know, I think we give this like hard time sometimes for constantly breaking the covenant and wandering off and taking, going with other gods. But I think the reason they do it is because they're Like, why am I trying to please this God when I when I can never succeed, where I can never make headway, I can never take a step forward? Why not just go worship Baal? Why not just worship Molech when they don't ask for anything? They don't really care. As long as I make the sacrifice, I'm good. I think that constant need to try and be right has to be an exhaustion. I don't know about you, but I know in my life, when I've tried to kind of sacrifice on the altar of good intentions, for the altar of my own work, I just end up tired and broken and burnt out. The book of Leviticus constantly reminds us that there is nothing that we can do as humanity that brings us back into the presence. God knew that the only solution, that the only way that this could be rectified, the only way that we could not have thousands and thousands and thousands of years of constant sacrifice, if for once and for all, He provided the sacrifice. You see, the problem with whenever we took our cattle, whenever we took our herds, our cows, whatever it may be, it was always going to be tainted with our own humanity. But God knew that for a sacrifice to truly be fitted, a sacrifice to truly pay, to cover the debt, to deal with the junk and the sin and everything that clothes humanity, He had to be the one who provided it. So we read in John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Word, the logos, also be translated as the reasoning of God or the voice of God, the part of God that creates, the part of God that takes chaos and draws out order, the part that puts the universe together, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. John not by accident using these words. John is using these words so that as his hearers would have heard them, they would have been reminded of Exodus 40, of God making his dwelling, the Shekinah glory, the kavod, the weightiness, the, the substance, the presence of God coming in to a tent, making his dwelling among humanity. And John opens his gospel and he says that God makes his dwelling among us. 
John then goes on to describe, he says, The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I mentioned. I said, A man who comes after me was a pastor because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain upon him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Then he sees what's going on. He sees this Lamb of God. He uses the sacrificial language. He says that here is God sending the great sacrifice. Here is God sending the burnt offering, the thing that will finally be enough, the thing that will deal with the junk and the pollution and the sin and everything that stops us from experiencing God's presence. Here is the one, and not only does he come, but he promises to baptize with his Holy Spirit. He promises to give us the one who will continue that work, who will continue that ministry, who will continue to allow us to live a life no longer unclean, no longer unrighteous, but a life that is righteous, a life that is holy, a life that is clothed in Christ. John is so deliberate about his language. John is knowing that Leviticus is ringing in the ears of all those John is saying that no longer does the sacrifice need to be paid. Remember at this time the temple was still in operation. The altar of the burnt offering was still being kept lit every day, every morning, every evening. The Israelites were still bringing their sheep and their lambs and their mutton and their goats and whatever else, and they were sacrificing and they were saying, God, I hope that I can find favor with you. I hope for this moment I can enter into your presence. I hope that I can do something that will allow me to be in relationship with you. And John is going, you don't need to. Because I, I think God, is going to provide the sacrifice. Jesus is our burnt offering. Matthew writing in his gospel, he picks up that same language when he talks about what's, what happens on the cross. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, in the same way that the burnt offering was fully consumed by fire, fully burnt up. Jesus was fully consumed by death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. In that moment, he was eternally separated from the Father. He took on all that it meant to be a burnt offering. And Matthew writes this, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. In some translations we read, his spirit ascended. We see that language, that Levitical language coming up there in the same way that the burnt offering, the smoke would ascend to heaven so that it would be pleasing aroma to God. 
Jesus gives up his spirit and it ascends into heaven so that it is a pleasing aroma to God, but not just for a moment, but for all of eternity. What happens on the cross ripples back through time and it ripples forward through time. So it meant that every time that we come to step into God's presence, no longer do we need to sacrifice because the sacrifice has been paid. Jesus has been our first offering. people who live on this side of the cross. But, I still think there are several important or key things for us to draw from our scripture this morning. I think the first, and one of the most uh, significant terms for me, is we need to not take the holiness of God lightly. That word, kabod, the heaviness, the glory of God is not something to be played with. I think one of the problems that we have in this free entry or free access to God is that we kind of bring him down to our level. I love hanging out with Leroy, but I don't particularly have to prepare for it. I don't have to sacrifice a great ball. I don't have to kind of dress up in my finest clothes. I don't have to make sure that I'm spiritually and morally right and clean if I want to hang out with him. I'm able to just hang out. But I think in that easy access, Lost an understanding of who God is. And that's not to say we need to break rules and regulations, and God doesn't care whether you wear a shirt on a Friday or a t shirt. Or he, I mean, he cares that you clothes. I think that is, that is universally agreed, or certainly yes. But actually, what you wear, what actually how you have your hair, whether you have a thousand tattoos or none, that doesn't matter. But what does matter is the attitude of your heart. Are you coming into God's presence recognizing the weightedness of the moment? Recognize that there is something significant that is taking place. The second thing is this idea that the priests were to keep the fire constantly burning. Now it talks about how that the fire fell from heaven, so God started the fire, but there was a responsibility of the priests to keep it going day and night. And I think that's the same truth in our own life. It is God who saves us. It is God who redeems us. It is God who pays the price so that we can be in his presence. But we need to continue to invest in that relationship. We need to continue to make sure that we're orientating our life, our priorities, every single part of it so it focuses on God. One of the things that Leviticus was really kind of good about is it literally said you can wear this but you can't wear that. You can eat this but you can't eat that. And every time that you went to go and get a baking sandwich you were reminded no because we are separated from God. Every time you went to get your favorite polyester wool mixed jumper you were saying no because we're separated from God. And while those practical examples no longer apply our lives should be constantly being made or we should be constantly making choices in our lives that say, I am separated out as God's people. That I want to continue to fuel that fire. That I want God's Spirit to continue to grow in me. I think it's no um, accident 
Now, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, the thing that John had prophesied, what is the image that he's used? It's tongues of fire falling on the disciples. There is something about the fire of God that falls in our lives, that rests upon us. The Holy Spirit, the seal of our salvation, the promise, the guarantee of all that God has done and God will do. But we need to continue to fuel that fire. We need to continue to make space for that fire to grow. We need to not suffocate it or squeeze it out because there are times it's going to be inconvenient. There are times when it's going to make you do things that you don't necessarily want to do, places you don't necessarily want to go, people you don't necessarily want to talk to, things but it is the fire of God. And so, in the book of Leviticus, we see that there is life. In the book of Leviticus, we see that there is this future promise of what Christ is going to do for us. In the book of Leviticus, we're reminded that we cannot do it on our own. That no sacrifice, that no good intention, no, well, if I live like this and I get this right job and I marry the right woman and I do that, is ever going to be enough. I'm going to invite um, the worship band up. And I want us to really take this moment and I want us to dwell on what it is that God is saying. What it is that God is speaking over our hearts. Because I think for some of us, we need that fire to be relit. I think for some of us, we need God to remind us that He has made the sacrifice. He has paid and I think for some of us, it's going to be the start of a great day, of a new adventure, as for the first time we recognize that God will. But before we get to that, it just allows space for the Spirit to write, to speak, to kind of breathe over our hearts, over our minds. So let's just stand and we're going to sing this simple chorus and we're going to sing it just as a prayer to God. Thank you.